Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Okay, well, thank you very much. I've taken a little bit of a hiatus on the uh, on the podcasting because, uh, you know, just thinking about things and how I wanted it to progress. Um, I appreciate tremendously all of the ongoing support. And uh, we're switching the format a little bit. There will still be some interviews, um, but I'm also transitioning to providing some of my own content. So what you should hear for the next couple of podcast episodes would be more personal stuff, uh, a little bit more teaching, and hopefully different ways I can deliver value to you. As always, I really value your input and if possible, I would appreciate if you would reach out on any of the social channels uh, or just email me, rabbirupp at gmail.com or jrupp at h.edu uh, and provide some suggestions for me of how I could better serve. And one of the things that I'm hoping you will see at this point is that we are extremely focused on living a better life. And one of the most important components of that is getting the direction and the one-on-one -on -one work that you need in order to live better. So I am a strong proponent of coaching. I do a lot of coaching myself, and I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to please do what many other people have done. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. There's no obligation to you whatsoever uh, to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And if that might not be the case, I would be thrilled to introduce you to any of the multitude of options and networks and people that I know who could provide that help. So again, please reach out via social channels, whatever it might be. I don't think I'm too hard to find. Certainly not, I hope. And, uh, and, and let me know how I could be of benefit to you. Thank you so much. I think one of the fundamentals that we have to consider as we go into Passover is not how is it going to not be great this year, but how are we going to take advantage? Because in the rest of our lives, we may never have an opportunity like this again to, to um, you know, frankly, to, 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 to celebrate Pesach like this. So it's very exciting. Okay. So you're sitting down with your kids and your wife, and you are there to communicate a message. So one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind as fathers on Pesach is that a lot of times we're used to the kids giving their presentations, theoretically speaking, about um, about what they learned in in the in the, you know in school, but we kind of sit back and learn from them. So the, it, it's really kind of reversed. the The mitzvah of the Seder night is actually being able to tell over to your children that the story of Egypt and that you're trying to work through the different components of the story in order to get to a basic theme which your children need to understand. And the theme that your children need to understand is that God involved himself in our lives, and as a result, our lives are going to be fundamentally different. Uh, one second, my door just opened, as is the staying-at-home situation. One second, please. Okay, so that's the point. 
So we have a tendency, wherever we're going through the, the Passover experience, where we like to let the kids talk, let, you know, we like to have the food, we read through the Haggadah, but the whole point is we're trying to get to a central message. The central message is that God stepped into the picture and he took us out of Egypt. Now, what does that mean fundamentally and why is it relevant for our life? So that's a great question because we have to think about it. Because most of our lives for the past 3,000 years since we went out of Egypt, we are not actively reliving it, right? It didn't. It's like it didn't actually happen to us. We never practically saw it. We have a tendency to live in the day in and day out world and live as if this kind of stuff never happened. Now it's fascinating because coming out of Egypt was the seminal event in all of Jewish history. Why? It says first of all, it's again we we in history, we, you know, the people that study history talk about something called a watershed event. A watershed event is essentially where a person, um, a person. Uh, what's it called, uh, like like history becomes completely different. And as a result, um, we live in, we our, our whole world has changed. So we say that in the beginning of the Haggadah, which is that even if our fathers and our father's fathers, I'm sorry, even if, our, even if, if God had not taken us out, even our children and our children's children would still be enslaved. So it's fascinating because the level of slavery that we experience in Egypt, it's not a slavery that was dependent on just the time, just the Pharaoh, because practically speaking, as we see with all of history, right, that, that, um, th that, that regimes change and circumstances change. And so why would the Haggadah ever make a statement like we would still be enslaved when in reality, everyone who's enslaved, a time comes when they'll get out. So there's something special about our slavery where we would have never come out. And so the fact that God took us out forever changed the situation, forever changed our life, and was one of those moments where, because it happened, our whole life has to be different. So what I venture to say is, is the following concept. When, when, a, when a person considers the fact that we came out of Egypt, what we are essentially saying is that nature has the ability to be suspended, that the practical realities of life and how things are gonna work out don't necessarily apply to us all the time. Why is that absolutely crucial? Because if you think about it, the entire world is set up on reaction and cause and effect, and this happened, and so therefore something else could be projected, and, and all of the natural world, and that, natural world is an unbelievably profound force upon which we govern our lives, upon which we kind of think through things, we, we make plans, etc. And oftentimes we analyze ourselves and what we can accomplish based on how the world works, right? I'm going to have a realistic projection. We always think in terms of business, in terms of our health, in terms of our families, we, we are always thinking through what are the realistic projections of what, what, is, what is humanly possible. And the, 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 the Seder turns the whole thing upside down, which is basically that it, that, that it says that even though from nature, right, you were meant to be enslaved forever. Again, it's the same concept. It's really a fascinating idea. Jews when we think about our history, we're trying to transmit our history to our children. Oftentimes we, we have an easy time with like modern history in some cases, if you're interested in these kinds of things. But when it comes back to biblical history, so again, prophets, you could talk about it a little bit. It's, it's fine. But when you get back to the Torah and you get back to, to, to Exodus, you get back to Genesis. So there's all kinds of things that, that are there where a person struggles because the world that's reflected in the five books of Moses is not the world necessarily that we see in history or certainly that we see today. And so it's a very awkward thing because when we're trying to talk Jewish history, even the most secular person, even the most 
um, you know, so, someone that, you know, like that has their religious struggle, so to speak, when you get back to the forefront of Jewish history and you think and you read about the forefathers and you read about coming out of Egypt. So a person is impacted by this idea that, well, you know, what, what part of that didn't happen or what part of that did happen? And what are the significance of those kinds of things? <clears throat> it's a really fascinating concept because the Jewish people, our whole nature is this idea of being miraculous, right? Practically speaking, the first kid, the first Jewish kid, theoretically speaking, even though he wasn't Jewish at that time, was, 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 was Isaac, right? Isaac born to a father that was 100 years old, to a mother that was 90 years old. The complete thing was a miracle. He was supposed to, you know, be sacrificed, all this kind of crazy stuff. It was so shocking he was born. He broke all of the trends and all of the themes. And as a result of that, right, the Jewish people started. And so Passover, it's the same thing. It's like the Jewish people, I, I, it's a, this is a favorite thing I talk about every year, that, that the Jewish people, if you think about it, were born on Pesach. This is, comes from the Maharal, who was a famous rabbi in Prague. And the Maharal speaks about that if you look, so the 10 plagues are, um, well, there we go. The 10 plagues basically were, were, um, were a process that initiated the, the birth of the Jewish people. The first plague was, was blood. And obviously we know when a baby's born that there's, there's blood present. And then, the, and then the, all of the plagues led up until the Jewish people came through the Red Sea, which was similar to the actual birth. So the Pesach is actually the concept of Klai being born. And so you would expect to find the exact same theme replicated at the very beginning, which is that the Jewish people... <clears throat> were born miraculously, they came out, and our entire history, therefore, is a reflection of something that's completely miraculous. And so when it comes to betting on the Jews, when it comes to being Jewish, connecting to Judaism, we're dealing in the world of the supernatural. And that's for sure how it goes, and that's how it goes across the board. So the fascinating thing about that is that it has a very practical and beneficial and real idea of, of, of how of how it um, I'm sorry one second of how it impacts our our practical lives because here's the here's the here's the thing we have an option right we live we live in a world where we could opt to live however we want that's 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 this idea of free will you can choose whatever you want and the more that we live with more options and more opportunities and all this kind of stuff. We have more and more options at all times. You want to you wanna learn, again, YouTube, it's crazy. There's so many different tools and techniques and things that you can learn and it's like really exciting and all kinds of stuff, right? But so you can do whatever you want. Now, the, the, the second question is, if you choose to live however you want, do you want to live according to the natural world where there is a progression, there is a all of these kinds of things, or for Jewish people, which we talk about on Passover, there's a second option, which essentially says, no, you have the ability to step above your nature. You can become something more. You can you can grow. You can bounce kind of out of the levels in order for you to achieve the, the, the growth that you're looking for. That's unbelievably fundamental. Why is that so important? Simple. Because, well, well, what does that mean? We, we work so hard in our lives to try to achieve something. And there's an idea, do you want to work yourself up from the bottom 
Or do you want to see how close you can get to the top? Is it cheating, so to speak? Is it, and it is a basic, this is a basic fundamental question that we try to impose upon our kids. It's a fascinating concept, right? There's a, will this go, we're going to go, okay. So usually as, as, as those who watch might, might know, when I, when I do the Scotch studies, I kind of go in a couple different directions, but it's a very interesting question, right? So, so, um, so there's a basic idea that we have an option. Is it more important? There's a, a person asks a question, right? Adam. Adam was the first man, and he had the ability to. He was the most spiritual person on earth. He had a direct relationship that he, he like God made him. Crazy thing. And so we think to ourselves, how could Adam have ever sinned? How is that ever even a possibility? Right? And the, the deeper sources, in this case, it's Rav Dessler that talks about this, explains the following, right? For Adam, sitting was absolutely black on white explicit. We have all kinds of reasons why we justify sitting. It's not really a sin. I didn't really know. Maybe no one's going to find out. I'm just working on myself. Let me go at my, at my old pace. So we have all these reasons why we did it. Adam had none of that, right? For him, the sins were black on white. What is right? What is wrong? So then you ask yourself, how in the world could you have possibly sinned? Again, it's the same questions. It's, it's not like we live nowadays where where we have this ambiguity. Maybe I'll get away. Maybe I won't be caught. No. Adam was literally, it's as if you're sitting in a car with, with uh, I would always use a CHP for California Highway Patrol, but I don't know what they have in Minnesota, but you know, the equivalent, they're like the Adina cops, like who, who are those guys, right? And the speed limit 55 here, which is, you know, who knew that one? But anyway, so, um, so, so you're sitting in the car and you have the Highway Patrolman who's sitting next to you and he's watching your speedometer. You would speed in that environment? You would never speed in that environment because like, it's an automatic ticket. Why would I do that, right? So the fascinating thing is that's the world that Adam lived in. So it becomes a very, like, it's a crazy idea. Why in the world would Adam have sinned in the first place? So here's the concept that I heard that was unbelievable for me, is basically like this. If you think to yourself, God, at, we live in a world where, I, I was talking to someone today, we we're talking about this idea about gratitude, right? So again, we live in a little bit of a stressful situation, and so one of the things that's very helpful is to compose a gratitude list. Tony Robbins talks about this, it's a Jewish thing, or if Noah Weinberg talks about this, right? Where you, where you go through and you enumerate the things that you have in your life that are great. So one thing might be, you know, I'm so glad I have my kids. I'm so glad I have my wife. I'm so glad I have my health. I'm so glad I have my eyes, right? So we live in a world where if, if pedal to the metal and our lives are really upside down, we can create a gratitude list, right? Now, the fascinating thing is if we didn't have our lives upside down or we weren't really working on this hard, it, we wouldn't really have a gratitude list. We live, we live in a world where we're surrounded by fantastic things all the time and we don't even take the time to think about it. Now, the fascinating thing was with Adam is that Adam was consistently aware Thanks for the uh, thanks for love and support. Adam was consistently aware of all of the things that God did for him. That's the crazy thing. He lived in a world where he was aware to his fundamental to his core how much God did for him. And as a person, when you're in a relationship that is so unbalanced, you're so surrounded by all of these different. Um, you're surrounded by all of these different. Uh, great things, and you you're not paying it back, so you start to feel a little bit small, right? So there's a, there's an idea that that, and this is just like a, a side note, Jewish idea that 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 a person when you give a gift to someone, you're supposed to let them give you a gift back because the experience of owing someone something is a very painful experience, and people don't like to be in it, right? So Adam was in his very awkward state because the balance had been so weirdly given to him. He gave nothing to God and God gave him 
everything. And he was constantly aware of it, like all of his mind, all day long, he was just generating all of these gratitude lists and they're all from God. And, and Adam's like, just chill there. He doesn't know what to do, right? So now the fascinating thing is God says, you know what, do me a favor, just don't eat from that fruit. Just for a little bit, right? The, the different Kabbalistic ideas explain this. It's a, it's a very short period of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it was, you know, very short time. Do me a favor, don't eat that one thing. Everything else you can eat, one thing you don't eat. Why? Because, you know, once that happens, you, you, you'll you fall from your stature. So the fascinating idea that I heard was like this. Adam thought to himself, look, I'm so close to the top of the mountain, right? I, I'm just, I'm getting everything and I'm so close to God that this one little thing, it's like small. It's not a big deal. Like I, I don't, it's like you just gave me a billion dollars and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make you a small milkshake. Like, like how does that, how does that even, it doesn't in the smallest way um, equal the scales. So Adam ate from the fruit with the idea that he would fall and have to find his way back, that he would have to generate distance in order to come close. And that ultimately was the greatest sin. Why? Because God didn't care per se about eating the tree. What he wanted to see was, could Adam really listen to what God actually wanted? Or would Adam fall into his own selfishness? And Adam ultimately fell into his own selfishness and didn't listen to what God said. And that was the crazy thing, right? So there's this deep, deep, deep part within us that does not want to be so close to the top of the mountain. We want to drag ourselves down into to the dirt, so to speak, so they can grind our way back up. And that's fascinating. And that's an approach. And a lot of people choose to live that approach. Now, the reality is that if you come from the bottom and you have to work your way up, fine. But if you come from a place where you're higher up on the chain, it doesn't mean, right, that you, that you shouldn't grow as much as you possibly can. It just means that a lot more is going to be expected of you, but you're expected to start at a higher level. And that's the fundamental. Now, the problem is, if you start at a very high level, again, famously, now we're going back to a little bit of politics, you know, Donald Trump famously in his campaign, campaign speech or one of his speeches said, my father got me started with a small business loan, forgot what it was, a couple million dollars. Again, he turned it in at a certain time, a couple billion dollars, not bad, right? Again, everyone's going to freak out about that, but that, that's the situation. And everyone jumped all over and said, your father starts you out with a couple million dollar loan? Like, what about all those kids that come out of college, you know, 50, you know, five, I wish 50, $500,000 in debt, and they got to start working from the bottom. And of course, you know, they have no work experience, so what, well, who's going to hire him? Well, Starbucks is going to hire him. So you have a kid who's fifty to $500,000 in debt. He's working in Starbucks. He has a history degree. I have a history degree, right? And he doesn't know what to do. And he's looking at Donald Trump and he's like, come on, man, that's not fair. Yeah, of course, it's, you know, greatness is expected of you because you started with all this capital get to, to, to start building. So in that situation, what do you think the person that has the father that's letting him take over the business, what do you think he's supposed to do? What he's not supposed to do is to blow all of his dad's money, go to college, go $50,000 in debt, and then work in Starbucks for 10 years so that he could say, look, you know, look what I could accomplish because all of that time was essentially a waste, right? So the interesting concept of Pesach is that a, that a Jewish person is presented with duality, with a tremendous duality. On one end, we can say we're going to go according to the rest of the world. We're going to be like everybody else. We're going to go according to nature, right? And nature, we know, it's fascinating, the Talmud has a debate. I'm going to bring the water bottle closer because I get dried out when I'm talking. And it's probably not good to do that with nice, with nice scotch nearby. Okay, so so, <laughs> so the Talmud has a debate. The Talmud has a debate. When was the world created? So there's two opinions. One says it was started in Nisan, the month of Nisan, the month when right now where Passover is. The other one says it started, you know, Tishrei, where, 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 where well, Tishrei's the last month, started Rosh Hashanah, the Rosh Hashanah that we have, right? And so it's very interesting because according to one approach, the world is, is trending towards um, winter. And the other approach, the world is trending towards spring. 
And it's very interesting. The rabbis have an argument. And really, of course, as with most Jewish debates, they're both right. They're both talking about different things, right? So according to the first opinion, it says the world was built in the, oh, it's Tishrei, right? It was built the month of Tishrei, the month of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. That's talking about the physical world. The physical world is built and it's on a tra trajectory towards death. It's not bad. It just is. The world is naturally decaying. You see a baby and the baby, yeah, it's a period of time. We get a, a Chip Wilson who had just finished his book. He founded Lululemon. He would, he has a cow calculator of how many days you have left, right? And again, whatever you base it on, a 100-year-old person, 120-year-old person, but you break your you break your life down into days, and you say, you know, I have a very finite, I have a very limited resource, and, and it's, it's called time, and I can use time as much as I want. Now, in that type of a situation, Right, we run this risk that we could we could waste time per se. That 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 you know, but but we have, we can live in a world that parallels nature, and the flip side is, and this is very fascinating, that the Jewish world, the Jewish approach is who or what was born in the month of Nisan. So it was the Jewish people. This this reality called Kol Now we're going to get into what that means specifically, but there's a special nation, a special group in the world where we see everything as the complete opposite. And rather than nature, we get we are born with that crazy opportunity instead of a couple million dollars worth of a you know capital investment to get the career started, we have this thing called prophecy. We have this leader called Moses and we have this relationship with God where he basically just kind of tells us what to do and what we're supposed to how we're supposed to direct our life. And we have a very prominent position. The Torah calls the Jewish people we are again this is not saying we're better than anybody else. It's that it's it's just different. And that and we're going to get into that also a little bit. One of the main challenges of the month of, of, of Passover is that the Jewish people lost their way. Again, it's interesting because when before the Jews, right, uh, before Abraham and, I'm sorry, one more time, the Jews in Egypt, before the patriarchs died, so Jacob was in Egypt and Joseph was in Egypt, and the, the uh, slavery didn't really start until those guys and all of the tribes, the heads of the tribes, Jacob's sons, all died. And after they all died, so then the slavery started. So interesting question, why? So the deeper sources explain it's because as long as the patriarchs were alive, right? So then the children were able to maintain their identity comfortably. And they knew who they were, and they knew they were there too, as the, as the Haggadah says, to sojourn in the land of, of Israel, I'm sorry, in the land of Egypt. And they had clarity, right? They had absolute clarity of who they were and what they were doing and what their point was. And the fascinating thing was once the patriarchs died, they knew there was supposed to be a 200-year exile. And as a result, they wanted to look as much like the Egyptians as possible. And they lost their identity, they forgot who they were. They said that we, you know, Ultimately, they were Egyptian, and that, that identity of theirs, which they had held on to so tight for so many years, that ultimately became second, first it was like second, secondary, and then it became kind of like, yeah, you know, I, 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 I know, you know, like Jews, whatever it might be, I think I might be that, that, that could be something I am. So the fascinating concept here is that, that the Jews got lost because we forgot who we were. And it's interesting because at the very beginning of, the, of, this, of this part of Magid, which is where you're telling over the story, we identified the world's greatest anti-Semite. The greatest anti-Semite in the world was not Pharaoh. You'd think it was Pharaoh because after all, like, you know, it is the poor uh, Passover story, right? Who's it supposed to be? They pick Lavan. Who's Lavan? What was Lavan? What was so bad about Lavan? Jacob's father-in-law. So okay, he switched the uh, he switched the he switched the, the the brides, right? So it's interesting because it says that Lavan was the worst because he tried to uproot everything. What does it mean he tried to uproot everything? So the first thing he did was he tried to stop the Jewish people from even coming into existence. It wasn't like Pharaoh that was just trying to kill the boys and not the girls and just oppress people. He tried to 
uproot us that we never even, it was like a stillborn. It never even came into the world, right? When he tried to switch the brides. And then, and then fasting left this the best, right? Jacob, after marrying Rachel, after, I'm sorry, after marrying Leah, and then he marries Rachel, and then he works for Lavan, and they set up a very clear situation where I watch your sheep, and only the sheep that look like this, I'll keep them, and the rest of them are yours. And eventually what happens with Jacob is he says, okay, you know, Lavan's not great. We got to get out of here. Get this is, this is the Bible. He goes and he asks his wife, wives, after God tells him, you should go back to Israel, he goes back and asks his wives, is it okay if we end up going back to to, uh, to to Israel, to which obviously his wives say yes. So Jacob and the family and, and all the sheep, all these sheep, which I love sheep, right? They're they're all they're all you know, they're trekking out there. And Lovin jumps up in the morning or at night. He realizes that they took off. He grabs his men. He pursues them, and they finally have this big confrontation. And it was like the greatest like water cooler like uh, you know inner office battle. Lovin's like you're you're stealing, you're running away, and Jacob freaks out. He's like, what are you talking about? I work my rear end off for you in the nights and in the days, and I work so hard and I did all this stuff and you just try to mess me over and mess me over. And here's the best line. This is why we think it Loveland is the ultimate anti-Semite. He says, what are you, what are you talking about? The, the women are mine. The kids are mine. The, the, the flocks are mine. And, and, and that's it. So you're like, what's so bad about that? He didn't punch anybody in the face. He didn't light anybody on fire, right? Like, what do you do? What do you do? The idea was that Jacob was building himself as an identity. And Lovon was saying that your identity doesn't exist. It can only exist underneath mine. And that, my friends, is the essential component that is so detrimental to anybody that's trying to find out who they are and be proud of who they are. Because as long as they feel like they exist for someone else, that they don't have their own identity, that they don't have their own ability to be themselves, so they're living in this existential, natural anguish. And again, I don't have to necessarily connect the dots for us, to hopefully, to see how relevant that is for most people today, right? Because so often, again, I, I love it, right? You have all of these people, you have all these people who they go on, you know, you, you got your kids home, you're trying to work from home, you, you know, maybe you're, you maybe you're, you may, you maybe your spouse is trying to work from home, and you, your kids, just school gets canceled forever, right? No one's ever going back to school. And uh, you, you're not a teacher, like, that's not your job, right? And, and now it's like remote, remote education. So now you're trying to like balance your kids, try to balance your job, everyone's screaming, knocking things over. And then you have a couple of these psychopaths, I love them, they're great, but psychopaths who will be putting on their Instagram and putting on their Facebooks all these beautiful projects and how wonderful it is for everybody to have the kids at home. And it's great, everyone dresses up nice and they have nice projects in the backyard and there's you know fancy breakfast and fancy lunch and the kids are sitting nicely and the kids and the, and the, and the parents, I have a dear friend, uh, Adam Simon, you can watch him. You look at all these awesome projects he's got. And like for us, we're just like hanging on by the skin of our teeth being like, oh my God, like I'm trying to work. I'm trying to watch the kids. Someone sit down. Don't light your sister on fire. All of these things are going on, right? And so what's really fascinating is we live in a world where we feel oppressed by the expectations of other people. And, and we feel like we have to fit in this box of somebody else and what's okay and how are we supposed to dress. And, and the, again, if you think about it, how fundamentally um, um, disconnecting it is, disconnective it is for us to feel judged by someone else. Why do we feel judged by somebody else? Essentially, what being judged by somebody else is, is feeling out of your element. It's feeling like you're competing for something. Good night, I love you. It feels like you're getting compete, you're competing for something that is, that is like, a, it's, a, it's a battle you don't want to like fight. It's like, you're not good enough for me. You're like, like, uh, what? 
And you feel so bad about that. And the secret to getting out of that is realizing that nobody's really competing. And it's great. There are certain people that absolutely love all the fancy projects with their kids at home. And, and that's great. And they can balance everything. And that's really great. But I'm in a different category. I'm doing my thing. And there's things that I'm good at. There's things that I'm bad at. But as long as I'm me, I'm good to go. So the fascinating concept is that what Lovin was, was, was on a national level trying to do to the Jews was to take away our ability to be ourselves. And he was subjecting us to saying that we're always going to be locked in his confines. Go back. So that issue was exactly what the Jewish people later did to themselves in Egypt, is we said, I don't want to be special. I want to fit in. I want to look like everybody else. Now, again, that concept, if you don't know who you are and you don't know where you're coming from, then it's very hard for you to connect back and to be essentially yourself. And that's something else fascinating we were discussing. That so often we have this big challenge in life, which is that we, 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 we want to get rid of the bad parts of ourselves. And, and a lot of times the pain in our life comes from the fact that there was stuff in our past that we want to run away from. And, th and that's true. And, and, and most people have that. And we hide that deep down and we're afraid if anyone would find out or if anyone would know. And, and, and it's like, it's like the shameful part of ourselves. We just try, like try to get rid of. It's like the, the, um, again, the, the, when you, you grew up and maybe you were, you were scared or maybe you were awkward or maybe all these kinds of things. And you spend your whole life trying to say, I'm different than that. And the reality is, right. I, I was literally speaking to a client about this today. And it was, it was a really deep idea. This person was saying like, I just want to move past. I don't want that person to show up again. And I started saying, well, but what if you learned about that person? What if you learned the, what the person was going through? If you come from an alcoholic family, learn about what it means to come from an alcoholic family. Learn about the effects of being in an alcoholic family. Learn about the reasons and the causes and really get, again, I grew up in a reform Jewish house. So for me, it was crucial for me to learn about the reformed Jews and, I, and, I, and, and learn about Orthodox Jews and learn about Judaism in general because all of the reasons why I was doing all of these things, I was initially just trying to hide who I was. But then once you go back and you start learning about who you are and where you come from, very quickly what happens, it's, it's a fascinating, it's an amazing idea. They did this great show. It was like a big dip that it, when, you, when you, you, know, you grow up and then you have kids I'm sorry, one more time. You, you, you are a kid. You grow up. You go to college. There's like this big need for everyone to be like the same person, more or less, right? Everyone's got to wear the Lululemon pants. I, I, I own Lululemon pants. Fantastic. I'm just saying, but we all kind of want to look and talk and act the same. And as we get older and we have kids, and especially as you get much older, right, like, like, like you know, really when we, when we like stop trying to impress people, frankly, we, we have this desire to go back to who we are and the desire to go back to where we're from. And this desire, again, I have this picture in my head of my grandparents. They lived till 99 and 97. And there's this beautiful picture of them standing together, looking out over the ocean. And, and it was just, it's like, it's a beautiful concept for me because for me, I always feel at home at the ocean, right? Why'd you move to Minnesota? Okay, good, good point. But anyway, so there's a certain concept that the older we get, the more we crave to return back to our roots because when we're done impressing everybody and we're done trying to be something, we just want to go back and be ourselves. So the worst possible thing is to exile ourselves from who we really are. And the best thing we could do is to try to embrace who we are. And so that's, a, that's one of the fundamental ideas of Pesach is that we have to go back and appreciate that who we are as Jews and who we are as a family. Again, it's, it, this is so, so profound. Why? Because we start off with this crazy thing in the Haggadah. It starts off, it says, all who are hungry, come and eat. And all, you know, who, who want to join the Pesach, you know, join in eat the, eat the, with, the, with, the, with the offering, right? 
So you ask yourself, like that's the weirdest invitation ever because like no one's coming because you're at your house, right? You didn't put it on Instagram, you know, six months before the pastor said, all who are hungry, who want to come to my house, come over, right? To your, to your 28,000 followers, right? No, that didn't happen. You're saying it, you're sitting, again, we're going to say it, it's like, it's like a joke, right? Everyone's got Corona, you know, everyone, God forbid, is terrified of coronavirus now. You know, you, you, you can't go to Trader Joe's. They're spraying down everything. They spray you. They spray your cart. They spray your hands. I spray my hands. You spray my hands. I, you know, I'm spraying the money. I'm spraying my card. I'm spraying the thing. Everyone's spraying. We're all sitting around, you know, coronavirus 2020 and we're going to read this line we're sitting with our families sitting there we don't want anyone coming in we don't want anyone to look at us anyone to talk to us and we say all who are hungry come and eat like it doesn't make any sense everyone shows up they want to eat we're gonna be like you gotta leave you gotta put on the gloves and the, and, the, and, the, and the suit right so the interesting idea is why do we say that because the the, the Baal Haggadah the person who wrote the the Haggadah thousands of years ago was trying to make a point. The point was that the Jewish people, in order for us to merit redemption, in order for us to come out and to experience Pesach, we could not do it by ourselves. We couldn't do it by ourselves. We needed to do it as a cause, so we had to do it as a Jewish people. And so in order for us to relive this appropriately, we have to recognize that we are all a people. And it's the peoplehood that got redeemed, not the individuals. And, and what's the proof of that? You're thinking already ahead of me. We say later in the Seder, right, about the, 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 the wicked kid. The wicked kid says to his father, what are all of these things to you? And the, and we, the father says back, you know, to, 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 to me, well, you wouldn't have come out of Egypt because you separated yourself from the group. And the Haggadah calls that kid wicked crazy thing. So the most dangerous thing to do on Pesach is to have this idea that I'm an individual. And again, we just talked about like, but it's so nice to be an individual. Well, sort of. But it's but the first step is to appreciate that the nation itself is a unique nation amongst the nations. Not better, but completely different with a completely different set of rules and a completely different experience and a completely different history. And if we didn't have this experience, we would never have been able to become who we became. And that's the first step of Pesach is to Think to yourself on a very deep level and give over to your children on the most, in the most like appointed way you can. What does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be a member of the Jewish people? And, and again, depending on where you come from, there's going to be a lot of answers, right? Because some people think, well, it means I have to keep kosher or people think I have to wear a kippah or it means like I have to go to Israel or whatever it might be. But what's really interesting is that you have to start this conversation because what does it mean to be Jewish? And a lot of times we don't think to ourselves what does it mean to be Jewish? And and then the, the Haggadah goes on to answer what it means to be Jewish. What it means to be Jewish is that going back to the beginning of the, of the, of the talk, you didn't start in Starbucks. You didn't start in debt and in Starbucks. You were very lucky. We say, we say again, it's a it's it's not an ego trip. And that's very important because the Haggadah is really not an ego trip for the Jews. It's not an ego trip for the individuals. It says that God desired us, which means I'm not special. I didn't get picked because I was so fantastic. No. He picked us without any other things. We were out of worshipers. We're like everybody else, right? No big, no big deal. God said, I'll take you. So you can't walk around and say, I'm special because I have a nice hairdo. That's why God picked me. Like, no, he just he just picked you. He picked you as a nation. And fascinating enough, this is a beautiful idea. As we're going through Magad, the, 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 the Haggadah is explicit that we got beaten down to such a level that all we could do was cry out. We did not give erudite speeches. We did not write books. We did not start hedge funds. We didn't give over a bunch of audio, you know, audible books and create 
faith, the cure to coronavirus and the Iron Dome and all of the great things that Jews do around the world, start Facebook, cool stuff like that. We weren't listing off to God, hey, save us because of all this cool stuff we're going to do. No, we were brought down to a most fundamental level of crying out to our fathers in, in a panic. In, 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 to the gods of our fathers, we cried out to, to, to God because our lives were so low. And you'd say to yourself, like, duh, like there's no atheist in a foxhole. And the answer is like, no, that's not the, that's not the point. The atheist in the foxhole is crying out, out of, uh, like, just, it, it just kind of, it's a natural state. Well, well, maybe that is even deeper to think about. I'm, I'm not sure, right? But the idea for, for what Jews do when Jews suffer is that we see, again, going back to this concept, that suffering for Jews is not to destroy us. Suffering for Jews is to see that a regrowth is about to happen, right? That, that, we, that we are experiencing the birth pangs of an, ex, an exodus, right? That's the whole story. The whole story is we're sitting there enslaved and it's awful. And what comes after that is God comes in, flips the world upside down and saves us. So it's this fundamental idea for us to relate to suffering in our own lives and challenge in our own lives to realize that everything that happens to us is planting seeds for our future growth, for our future redemption, for it's all going to like lead us to a positive place. And so that's the idea of being born in the month of Nisan, right? Because Nisan is driving us. The month of Passover is is driving us towards growth, towards life. And that's a very deep idea because when Jews die, that's that idea. We, we talk about it's it, we're, they were really alive because, again, not to go completely mystical to everybody, but 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 the, the graveyard, sometimes it's called like a house of life, right? And and there's this idea that that for us, it says in, in Pirkei Avot, that this world is compared to a doorway and the next world is like the great hall. So the traditional way of looking at the world that we live in is that we're in a transitionary stage towards our real existence, which is the, the life afterwards, right? So we have this idea that there's a glorious future. How does, again, it's a, such a deep and a beautiful idea, right? So, so if, you, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy and if you look and you understand how Jewish history works, God's always promising, I'm going to give to you. It's going to happen to you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all died knowing that the Jews would be redeemed, but never seeing it. And, and the fascinating thing was Moses actually, this is so deep, think about this two seconds. I know I'm going long. I'm going to end in five minutes. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew there would be a Jewish people, knew that the Jews would go down into slavery and knew that they would be taken out and redeemed. And fascinatingly enough, God yells at Moses because Moses says, God, take the Jews out. And God's like, what are you talking about? Who do you think you are that you're going to watch the Jews come out? I, my greatest, most righteous people, they died never seeing it happen. They just had faith. And fascinatingly enough, when Moses, who eventually did lead the Jews out, what happened with him? So there's this idea that when they came to the Red Sea, they sang the song called Az Yashir, that, about, about God redeeming them, but it's all in the future tense. So the deep sources say that God was teaching the Jews at that point about the resurrection of the dead, not getting into that so deeply, but the idea was that even Moses could not sit without waiting to see God's promises fulfilled. God gave a new promise that would be occurring afterwards. And what's Moses' life look like? After he dies, knowing. He literally says it's like the most tragic, crazy, awesome thing. When Moses is on his deathbed, he's like, hey guys, everything's good. We spent the last 40 years trying to get to Israel. By the way, you should know, I'm going to die. You guys are going to go and you're going to be there for a little bit of time. Then you're going to rebel and you're going to get kicked out. And then, you know, and then all of history is going to happen. You're going to exile and then God's going to bring you back to the land of Israel. And then, and then, and then that's, that's the end. 
So there's this fascinating idea because if you look at all the Jewish leaders, they all died, lived and died with God's promises of what was going to happen in the future. So it was a it was a society, it was a culture, it was a deep-seated idea that we live for tomorrow. And that's a fascinating idea because if you live for a better tomorrow, suddenly you can start to advocate for a better tomorrow. So if you live with the idea that tomorrow is going to be better, so suddenly there's an idea that you can get up, not to go deep dark, but we'll go dark because like, why not, right? So so one of the reasons why people get in a very deep place, in a deep depression, in suicide and all these kind of things is because they've lost the idea that tomorrow is possible. Because if you if you if you lose that if you if you lose sight for one second of that hope so then you're totally lost and the amazing thing is that the Jewish people have always had this idea of tomorrow so not only can we advocate for our own abilities do we say you know and I, I read a beautiful um, oh, I don't I remember where it was um, it was a, it was a Holocaust survivor in San Diego and she gave a class uh, she gave a whole interview on the Jocko podcast which I recommend everyone listen to the podcast and the interview with the with the, with the Holocaust survivor and one of the things that she was told in the camps was you just have to disassociate yourself. You have to appreciate that instead of the world, that instead of you going crazy, you have to realize the world's gone crazy. And instead of you thinking that there's no hope, you have to realize that the, this thing, the Nazis and all that stuff, there's no hope here. And eventually the day will come where you will get out of this. And that carried her through like five years, right? Uh, it was not five years, she was Hungarian, so it was like a year and a half of being in Auschwitz, but really terrible stuff, right? So that is the endemic, that is the concept, that is the whole virtue and value of what it means to be a Jew, is that we believe in a tomorrow. And we don't just believe in our tomorrow, we believe in everybody's tomorrow. And so that's why if you look at the fundamentals of every single big change ideas, it was Jews thinking maybe tomorrow could be better. We've always been dreamers. We've always seen things that have happened before they've happened, really trendsetters. And that's the whole idea. If you look at the natural world, there's no point to getting up tomorrow because tomorrow is just one other step to death. And if you go through the natural, your natural life, it's like what, you know, only I can achieve is like, you know, the, 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 you know, whatever I can achieve, whatever it might be. But if you have that idea that tomorrow can be better and there's a great future and that the nature doesn't hold you back, you can dream big. And once you start to dream big and once you think about what's possible, so all of a sudden the boundaries open up because you're no longer locked in your head and you're no longer locked, locked in nature. And it's not like, oh, what small thing did we possibly accomplish? No, we want to solve big problems. And when people think big and people think about solving big problems, oftentimes they're motivated to inspire other people to do it. So to speak, the universe conspires. God conspires. God makes the dreams happen because we have the, the, the courage. Again, I'm not saying us particularly, but, but yeah, I'm saying us particularly. This is our, again, this is our national heritage. Do other people do it? Absolutely. But, but, but fundamentally what it means to be Jewish, what it means to go through a Pesach, what it means to experience is when you talk to your children is that I, us, we, we are part of a, of a nation and the nation is the nation of hope. And the nation is the nation that, that is all about tomorrow. And the nation is a nation that doesn't need to rely on physicality in order for us to survive. We are a 1,000% miracle. If we were left to, to nature, we would have been gone 5,000 years ago. And, and there's no question about that. And the fact that we're here is a testament to the natural, miraculous nature of the Jewish people. And if we as a nation can embrace our theme, our natural heritage, our ability to, to be born with this beautiful idea of tomorrow and this beautiful national charge called the Torah. So then what else can we accomplish in our lives and how can we benefit and how can we grow and how can we create a better tomorrow? Because that's what we're all about. So Pesach coming, uh, Pesach is coming. I want to wish everyone a, a wonderful Passover. I want to give you a, a blessing that your life should be a, a life of growth and potential and thinking and have you grow out of your stages. And uh, thank you very much for listening. From the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it always, your support. Thanks, H.com. Thank you, H. Minnesota. Thanks for all tuning in. Thank you to Todd. And uh, thank you, thank you.
There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.